0: Good evening. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 29. In Genesis chapter 29, beginning in verse 31, here's what we read. It says, Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has seen my affliction... Surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore he was named Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time, I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Just to give you a little bit of background, this episode with Jacob and and, and Leah and this, this whole thing plays out kind of like a Jerry Springer episode. This is dysfunction to the max, right? And so, Jacob is tricked by his uncle Laban into marrying two sisters, Rachel whom he loved and Leah whom he didn't care much for. And this breeds quite a contentious and quite hatred between Rachel and Leah. And the drama can be summed up in two statements. Verse 30, so Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban for another seven years. And then verse 31, now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So what you have here is a recipe for a messy family. One wife is loved, but is barren. The other wife is unloved, but can have children. And notice how Leah describes her life. She described it describes it as afflicted, unloved, and unattached. She has three sons, and with each son, she has a, a, a phrase attached to it. Surely, now my husband will love me. Secondly, the Lord heard that I am unloved. Third, now my husband will become attached to me. Sadly, not even three sons could earn the love of her husband. Jacob still wasn't interested in her. And so, I want you to notice what happens after the birth of her fourth son. Verse 35, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah and then stopped bearing. You see the change in Leah's attitude? Instead of trying to earn her husband's favor by having more children, she finally with the fourth one says, okay, enough of that. Instead of trying to please my husband and instead of trying to to get him to notice me, I'm going to pursue God. I'm going to put him first. And I'm going to seek to praise him. I'm going to seek the relationship with him and put that first. Now you may be thinking to yourself, what in the world does all this have to do with fellowship? Isn't that the subject for tonight? Well, we're getting there, but what I want you to see first and foremost is that family is messy. And the Bible is very clear about that. There are many episodes in the Old Testament that show us the dysfunction of different families. And I think that's good in a couple of ways. Number one, I think it is a true testament to the inspiration of the Bible. Because if you were trying to write a story about God and about people, you wouldn't include all the bad stuff. But the Bible does, because it's there for our benefit. And secondly, what you see throughout episodes like this one with Jacob and Rachel and Leah is that God still loves these people, even though they're hard to love sometimes. God still loves them, and he didn't give up on them. And he doesn't give up on us either. How many of you have dysfunction in your family? You don't have to raise your hand, but probably a lot, if not all of us. We've all got that crazy uncle, or you are that crazy uncle. We've all got a black sheep in the family, or you're the black sheep of the family. Just about all of us have divorce, drugs, alcohol, I mean, there's dysfunction in every family, isn't there? And sometimes we try to gloss over that. Sometimes we don't like to talk about it. We don't like to admit that it's there. But all of us, to some degree, have dysfunction. And the church is no different. If the church is a family, and it is, then there is certainly a messiness to that family. There is dysfunction within our family. Do you realize that our family tree goes back to Rachel and Leah and Jacob? That's our family Whether you like it or not, that's our family. The Messiah came through the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you back up in Genesis chapter 28, as part of Jacob's dream, God said to Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed." Numbers 24 and 17 reads, or speaks, I should say, of a star that will come out of Jacob. Genesis 49.10 mentions a ruler from the tribe of Judah. Isaiah 11.1 speaks of a shoot out of the stock of Jesse. And 2 Samuel 7.12 uses the term seed that will come out of the body of David. So if the Messiah has not come yet, like some Jews still believe today, then he can't come. He can't because all the Old Testament prophecies concerning the genealogy and all that are worthless because a future Messiah will never be able to be established from the lineage of Abraham if he hadn't come yet. Thus, He could never fulfill those prophecies about him. Now, of course, we believe that he has. We believe that he matches that fingerprint of a Messiah that the prophets spoke about in the Old Testament. Galatians 3, 26 and following says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Now, you've probably noticed that the Bible focuses a lot on what it means to be God's people. God always chose a people. First, it was Adam and Eve. Then it was Noah and his family. Then it was Abraham. Then it was the Israelites. Today, it's the church. God always chose the people, and he took care of those people. He was their God, and they were his people, right? He protects them. He sustains them. He loves them. You've probably also noticed that much of the New Testament is spent explaining what it means to be a Gentile into God's kingdom, because we talked about that this morning. We've talked about it a lot lately. Jesus came to expand the kingdom. No longer was it just about the Jews. The chosen people were all those who would accept Christ as the Messiah, put Him on in baptism, right, live faithfully. And so a lot of the New Testament is dedicated to showing us what it means to be a Gentile in the kingdom of God. I am a citizen of the heavenly kingdom, and I get all those rights and those privileges. I get to share in the inheritance of His people. I mean, what it all means is that I am a part of the Bible story. Abraham's story is my story. Rachel, Jacob, Leah's story, even those unsavory stories of the Old Testament, that's my story. I'm inserted into that story. I'm a part of that lineage, right? I'm inserted. And like I said, that's okay. It's okay that even though there's dysfunction, even though there are parts of of the story that we don't like to maybe share, it's okay because it shows that God has a plan through the mess. Even in the messiest of times, God had a plan, and still has a plan. Now, we do need to understand that the mess is not an excuse. It can't be a cop out. We don't get to say, "Well, you know, this is a family. I know it's God's family, but I don't just get—I just don't get along with so and so, and it's just the way it is." Now, you don't get to take that route. You don't get to excuse the mess. You don't get to create the mess and just say, oh, well, God will clean it up. That's not how this whole thing works. When it comes to being a Christian, it is never Christian to be unchristian. You can't excuse the mess. You can't justify the mess. You can't do the opposite and expect that to be okay. Jesus prayed this. He said, but now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth." As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. We often think that fellowship is a means to an end we get together for a purpose, or to meet a goal. Sometimes that goal is to eat. We come together for a potluck and for fellowship, to play games, to eat, to enjoy one another's company, but that's the complete wrong view of fellowship. Fellowship is the goal. It's not a means to an end. It is the end. It is the goal, it is the purpose for why we come together. Jesus said as much in John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you, you, God, have sent. Fellowship with God is salvation. You don't have salvation without fellowship with God. Knowing God, having a relationship with Him is what fellowship is. But this fellowship is not selfish. Jesus also said, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Then, verses 21 and 22 of John 17 reads, That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So there's a purpose for our oneness. So that the world may believe that you sent me. That's it. That's the purpose. There is a reason for our fellowship our fellowship with God, our fellowship with one another here, that we might share the good news to the world around us in the hope that they might become a part of this family as well. So that they may see us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Our unity, you see, is a testimony to the power of Jesus Christ. And we are wrong to assume that fellowship is just about getting together to have a meal. So much more than that. And it's not a means to an end. It is the end. It's the goal. It's the purpose. We are so far off on this it's not even funny. I mean you think about how many churches have made a certain issue their pet agenda and so they'll study the topic for a year and that becomes that becomes their livelihood. That becomes everything about them. We're studying this issue or that issue and we're going to study it for a year and, and what usually means that we're going to change something and, and you I think Jesus would be saying, Look, that's not what you're about. What are you doing? You should be about Jesus and about the gospel. Why are you making these other issues the issue? Why are you making these other things paramount to what you do and who you are? You're not identified by this. And obviously, you know, unfortunately, many times those things are, are, are unbiblical anyway. If your church is not about Jesus and the gospel, it is not a church of Christ. If your church is not about Jesus and the gospel, first and foremost, it is not biblical. Check my work, go to the Bible, go to the New Testament and look at what the church did, what it stood for, what it was about. When we get lost on peripheral issues, some important, some not important, some biblical, some unbiblical, But when we get lost on those and make that about what we are and make that our identity, we have failed. Doesn't mean we can't talk about those things. Doesn't mean it shouldn't be a part of our our, our teaching. But it shouldn't define everything about us. Who we are, what we're about is defined by Jesus and the gospel. A gospel-centered church cannot coincide with a consumer driven mindset. And this is what we see so often. Whether we're talking about taking a year to study a certain topic because we want to change our identity, or whether we're talking about even landing somewhere where scripture lands and something that's a good place to land, but making that our only focus, whatever it is, if it's not about Jesus and the gospel first and foremost, then we're off base. And what we see so often in our culture is that, that there's, this, there's this customer mentality. I come to church because I'm a customer, and, and you are providing a service, and so therefore, give me what I want. The customer is always right, and if you don't give me what I want, then I'll go find somewhere that will. And we're going to talk about this later in another sermon, but we've got to shift our thinking from a consumer or customer mindset to a coworker mindset. You're not a customer. You're a co-worker. At least you should be. And again, you can check that work and you can go back to the New Testament church and you can read through Scripture and see that the church was to be about doing something. Mainly, it was to be about spreading the message, the agency by which the story of salvation was to be told. God spelled out for us very plainly in Luke 9, 23 and 24, where it reads, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. So if anyone wants to get behind Jesus, then he must repudiate all selfishness. He must be willing to take on the shame, the rejection, the mocking, the ridicule, the the cross, and conform his life to that of Christ in all things. The gospel does not match consumerism. In fact, it's diametrically opposed to it. But today it's all about what you can give me. What can you do to serve me? How How can you give me what I want? And if you can't, if you don't want to meet my conditions, Well, then I'll find somewhere else. Here's the thing. Fellowship fails because we fail. I mean, God's plan's perfect, right? There's dysfunction because we're dysfunctional. We mess it up, right? If a family's messy, it's because of the people who are in the family that are messy. Like Leah, we have to reach the realization that pleasing man is an effort in futility. And we should recite her words. This time I will praise the Lord. This time I will seek to please Him. We start there. We don't start when we talk about fellowship. We don't start with potlucks. We don't start with playgrounds. We don't start with, with, with programs. We don't start with what does this church have to offer me or is it kid-friendly or I didn't get anything out of worship. That's not where we start. No, you start with purpose. You start with mission. You start with where the Bible starts when it comes to church and that is how can I dig in and help? what can I do to help this church accomplish the mission? That's what it's about. What can I do to seek and save the lost? Because that's what the church is to be about. And often we miss this because we're too focused on other things, those side items or side issues that we just mentioned. You know what the Greek word for church is? It's ekklesia. And you probably know that ekklesia simply means the called out. But you... You've got to understand something about Greek terms. You don't define them by their etymology. You define them by their context. That's like when you hear people say, "Well, you know, women can be elders in the church because that word there can mean blank." Well, there's a lot of Greek words that can le- mean a lot of things. You ever looked at Vine's Expository Dictionary of New and Testament Words, New and Old Testament Words? There's all kinds of words in there for for different things, right? I mean, just look at love. There's several different words for love. But you've got to use the Greek in context. People fail to do that, and so they apply a Greek word in a certain situation or in a certain text where it doesn't apply. It could mean that, but it doesn't mean that there because that's not the context. So when you're defining Greek terms, you don't go by etymology, you go by context, right? And what we've done with the word ecclesia is because it means called out, we emphasize the separateness. We emphasize that we are separate from the world. We are called out from the world. Yes, but that's not the emphasis of this word. That's not the emphasis of ecclesia. It's not separateness. You know what the emphasis of ecclesia is in context? It's togetherness. It's community. It's fellowship. It's being together. Ecclesia is being brought together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the emphasis. By the way, do you know what the word Pharisee means? It means separate. <laughs> so we've got to be careful on how we emphasize words, right? We didn't come up with the concept of Christian unity. We are not the architects. Unity was created by God. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. But here's a very important point to keep in mind. Although we didn't create unity, we can disrupt it. It's on us as Christians as the called out to do the things that make for peace. Over and over again, Paul talked about unity because Paul understood we can't accomplish the mission if we're not unified. If we're constantly infighting and backbiting, we can't get this thing done. But what happens so often is we'd rather be right by ourselves than to live with you and disagree with you. And Paul talks quite often about giving up your rights for the sake of the brethren. Understanding that you don't always have to win the argument, that winning a soul is more important, that not everything has to be a debate, that sometimes it's best just to keep your mouth shut, that just because you have an opinion doesn't mean that it's valid. Notice what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter four. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness with patience showing tolerance for one another in love being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace there is one body one spirit just as also you were called in one hope of your calling one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is over all through all and in all you know i hear people talk about how you know the church has got to be unified We've got to all be on the same page, but we stop there and I always think, or at least I always thought, when I was new to the church, okay, well, what does that mean? Because we're not all on the same page on everything. We're not. There are things that we all in here may disagree on. At least some of us, right? We're not unified on everything. We never will be. No church is. No matter how small or how big. So what does it mean to be unified? When Paul stresses unity, what's he talking about? What are the things that are most important to be unified on? I think it's right here. One faith, one Lord, one baptism, all these ones that he mentions here. you got to be unified on those things. Because all these things relate to the gospel and to our mission. So what can I do to maintain unity in this family? From a practical standpoint, what can I do to maintain unity in this family? Number one, I can follow the words of Paul that we just read, and I can be humble, and I can be gentle, and I can be patient, and I can bear with one another. Secondly, I can do what Paul said to do in 1 Corinthians fifteen two, where he wrote, hold fast the word which I preach to you. I can also remember that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is, is matters of first importance, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, these facts matter more than tradition or opinion. The church may divide, the church may even disfellowship someone who doesn't come together on the essential ones of the Bible. But the church should never divide or disfellowship over tradition or opinions. Your traditions matter a whole lot more to you than they do to someone else. Your opinions may mean a whole lot to you, and that's fine, you can have them but you can't bind them, and if you do, you're sinful. Let your traditions and your opinions have their place and understand that they can disrupt unity, and if you're so bent on them that you're gonna stick by them and cause disruption of unity in the church, then you're wrong and you're sinful. We can also make certain that we don't quarrel over those opinions, Romans 14:1. And finally, if we wanna maintain unity, we can take to heart the words of Paul in Romans 15, one, where he writes, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. You see, it, it is my responsibility as a Christian to maintain unity and the bond of peace within Christ's family. That's up to me. God sets something in place that is perfect. We're the ones that mess it up. So let's not mess it up. Not saying that we do. I mean, I think this church does a really good job of being together and treating each other as family. Let's continue to work at that. Let's continue to actively seek the things that make for peace. You want to know how you maintain the unity of the church? You invest in the mission. You know, that takes the focus off of yourself. When you invest in the mission, when you invest in other people, and don't get sidetracked by things that aren't missional. I'm in no way suggesting that some of those peripheral things are not, uh, that are unimportant. I'm not saying that at all. Many of those things are important, and it's good that we discuss them, and we do. But it's easy to get sidetracked. And it's easy to make, it's easy to make our mission about something that's not the true mission. And when we do that, we have failed. You know, everyone has a checklist for what they're looking for in a church family. Many of you have been here, you know, some of you have been here for a long time, some of you are new to our family here, some of you are visiting, but all of us have a checklist in our minds, right? When we go and visit somewhere, when, we, when we're looking at a church and, and considering it to be our church home, we have a checklist. We all do. And you know, we hope that the singing is good, we hope the preaching is good, we hope that, you know, they're loving and they're caring and that people are welcoming, all those things, and, and that's a good list. I'm not trying to demean that at all. And we visit around and we try to find, you know, hopefully we find a church that meets all the items on our list. But if we're really honest with ourselves, our list a lot of times is pretty selfish. I mean, it is. You know, I mean, it just is. Yes, we want certain items met. But a lot of times, those are are more, they're more shallow than we want to admit sometimes, right? And we seldom find a church that meets every, every item on our list. There are very few people who find a church that ticks every box. Like I've said before, there is no perfect church. We go on vacation, we visit a church one time, we come back talking about all the great things they do. They're not perfect either. And if you find the perfect church, you've heard me say it before, don't go there, you'll mess it up. So, I mean, it, it's hard to ever find a church that meets all of those needs. But but maybe, maybe we need to shift our thinking a little bit and maybe we need to consider that the thing that should be at the top of the list is often not even on the list or way down at the bottom. What are the essentials? What is it that's most important when looking for a church home and, and investing in a family? Do we ever ask the question, is it, is it gospel-centered? Is it all about Jesus and the mission? Because I don't care what church you go to. I don't care what church you end up placing membership with. It can be dynamic. It can have uplifting programs and singing and all those kind of things. But if it's not about Jesus and the gospel, if the Bible isn't held in highest esteem, if it's not preaching the truth, it's not for you. The mission is this. Jesus said it, and I believe it that the world may believe. We accomplish this mission by being in fellowship with our Lord and in fellowship with one another. Unity is the key. It's not just about eating a meal after church. It's not just about small groups, although all those things are great. Fellowship is not a means to an end. It is the end. It is the purpose. Let's make it our goal. Not just when we come together for activities, but each and every Sunday and all that space in between the Sundays. Fellowship with God, fellowship with one another. And if you don't have that fellowship with God, as we talked about this morning, if you're not connected to the vine, you don't have a relationship with the Lord and you want to you change that this evening, then let us help you with that. We'd love to study the Bible with you, pray with you. Maybe you're ready to to begin a daily walk with God, ready to put him on in baptism, certainly we would do that as well. We want you a part of this family. We love you, but more importantly, God loves you and wants you a part of his family. So if we can help you, Jim's going to lead us in a song. If you have a need, come as we stand and as we sing.